Good morning, Chapel family. Good to be with you this morning. Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. Good news, uh, because we go through storms in life. I, we're going to talk about a storm this morning. Uh, if you turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, we started last week a series looking at the life of Abraham. As I was thinking about storms, uh, Friday night, I was listening to the news and and seeing uh, that there was a storm front coming through, a cold front. And uh, a lot of our folks are gone this weekend on a family camp. They're camping out up at Mark Twain Lake. And I was Friday night I was in a bit of a quandary because I see this uh, storm front coming through and I, I think of the folks up there setting up their tents and, and uh, I thought, wow, should be praying that it doesn't rain. And then I went outside and I looked at my lawn and uh, it's kind of turning brown, and I thought, wow, I could really use some rain. So do I pray for rain or no rain? And Well, they must have prayed harder than I did because we didn't get any rain. <laughs> Most of us have really very little experience with real drought and famine that tends to accompany real drought. I mean, for most of us, drought is just our lawn's turn brown and for most of us famine is you know there's a spike in the price of orange juice because of drought or frost or or you know we have a shortage of milk and eggs because there's an ice storm coming through Lake St. Louis and to us that's that's famine that's about all we know of it but famines are real and they are quite devastating most of the famines in our age have happened in places like Africa in in Africa, places like Uganda and Ethiopia and Somalia and Sudan, and but there have also been famines uh, in the last century in in uh, in Southeast Asia, places like North Korea and Bangladesh and Cambodia. I'm so thankful for groups like World Vision and World Relief and Compassion International and uh, Samaritan's Purse and. Groups like that who work to mount a Christian response to hunger and famine around the world. I'm, I hope that you at least occasionally support such ministries which are busy not only giving the gospel but caring for the suffering and the, and the hurting. Our text opens this morning. We, last week we went through verse 9 of, of chapter 12 here of Genesis and we begin here in verse 10. With these words, it says, now there was famine in the land. There was a famine in the land, and we realize again that that's something new to us, or not a, that we're not acquainted with. Abram really was not very well acquainted with famine either. You recall that Abram was born and raised in the city of Ur. Ur is down in southern Mesopotamia, current modern-day Iraq. The city was right there on the Euphrates River and there's a plentiful and dependable water supply. Famine and drought really was never an issue in Ur. God called Abraham out of Ur and brought him up some 750 miles up to Haran, as we saw in the earlier verses of this chapter. And then some years later, God brought him about 550 miles from Haran to Bethel in Canaan to the promised land, the land that when God called him out of her, he said, I'm going to follow me. I'm going to to a land where I will show you. 
Last week we noted that when they arrived in Canaan into this land of promise that they found that the land was occupied. They got there to this land that God said, I will give to you and to your descendants, but there were already people there. The Canaanites were living in the land. And we learn sometime later in Scripture that the Canaanites are a fierce bunch of folks. They are ruthless. They are evil. Not only is the land now, do we find, is it occupied, but here apparently a short time after they get there, not only is the land occupied, but now there is famine. And it doesn't take much imagination for us to imagine that Abram is hearing a few choice words from Sarai and the household. Good move, Abe. Nice promised land you've got here. (laughs) It's occupied and it's in famine. Have you ever been there? Feel like you are a loser, like you failed, or like something's wrong. May I say that there's a, a lesson here. Abram is following God and yet he's landed in famine. The lesson is this, if you follow Christ, don't be surprised if you encounter famine. God doesn't shield His followers from famine. As a matter of fact, He often deliberately sends us right into famine. Now, the famines in your life, the famines in my life might look different than parched earth. Famines may be financial difficulties, a difficult marriage, or unfulfilled longings, or loneliness, or a frustrating job, or physical ailments. It's difficult, unwanted situations that come into our life, and it feels like a famine We may not want these things, but these are the tools that God uses to grow us, to build our character and our faith. And Abram didn't have the benefit of uh, that you and I do of having the Scriptures to go to and, and, and learn from. Abraham is blazing the trail. He's setting a pattern for us of, of what it is to follow God in faith. He's learning and we're learning by His example. He didn't have the book of Romans and the Apostle Paul saying that we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. As Paul writes in Romans 5, James says something very similar over in James chapter 1. And you're familiar with that passage where he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds, when you face them. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete and lack nothing. So when you and I have famine in our life, when we have these difficult times, our first response shouldn't be, how can I get out of this? If we're those who are following God in faith, our response rather should be, Lord, what is your purpose in this? Instead of asking, what will I do? We should be asking, Lord, what would you want me to do? What would you have me to do in the midst of this situation? And Abraham's life is serving as this example to teach us, as I've said. Last week we saw a great lesson of faith in the first eight verses of this chapter, nine verses. Now as we come to this section, what we see is we're going to learn from Abram's failure. 
as instead of acting in faith, Abram acts in fear. It's fear that will drive him as we continue here in verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Abram picks up the folks and they head down to Egypt. He's just going to stay there a while. He's not going to move there. God had brought him to the land of Canaan and said, Abram, I'm giving you this land to your descendants forever. So Abraham says, this is the land of promise, but we're going to go down to the land of Egypt just for a while. There's no food here. I note that there's no prohibition, no command that says, Abram, don't go to Egypt. God doesn't speak. He doesn't leave word for, for Abram here. He doesn't say Egypt is off limits. But let's also note as we go through the story, let's note what's missing. For the folks who lived in Canaan, and Canaan was prone to drought, it doesn't take long, just a few weeks of, of no rains and the and the water supply starts to dwindle and it can very quickly turn greenery to just stubble and dry up wells and, and stream beds. And when it gets severe, the folks in Canaan were used to going down to Egypt. That was the normal thing to do. It's the common thing to do during a famine. So much so that in Egypt there was they have uncovered murals, and one of the murals, or maybe several of the murals, depict folks coming to Egypt for food. See, the the land of Egypt has the Nile River running through it towards the Mediterranean Sea, and as it comes toward the sea, it, it fans out and forms the Nile River Delta, and in that area there's fertile land and there's plenty of water, and so there is almost always plenty of food in Egypt. So it was a normal thing to do. It was the expedient thing to do to go to Egypt to get food. The problem is Abraham isn't normal. See, Abram was chosen by God. He was called by God to go to the land of Canaan. He was told by God, you're inheriting this land. This is your land. Abraham, we saw at the, the end of our section last week that he, he pitched his tent at Bethel, which means the house of God. What's missing, you see, in verses 1 through 8, it's not missing there. What's in verses 1 through 8 is those verses are constantly filled with, with Abraham following God. With God saying, Abraham, go here. And Abraham saying, okay, I'm going, Lord. It's filled with Abraham who is worshiping God and building altars and calling on the name of the Lord. And we get to this section and suddenly there's no talk about following God. There's no talk about worshiping God and building altars and calling on the name of the Lord. That's what's missing. Abraham is leaving the house of God in the land of promise to go down to get food in Egypt because there's no human solution to the problem he's facing. Fear seems to have pushed faith in the background. And may I say that that often happens in my life and it probably often happens in yours. Abraham had no problem trusting God in faith with the big issues of life. God says, pack up everything and go to a land I'm going to show you. You don't know where you're going. Man, he follows along. He goes there. He gets to the land of promise. Now it comes to the simple things. You just don't have food. 
and his faith fails him. And we often trust God with big things. We say, Lord, I, I believe, I trust you with my eternal salvation. I trust you with heaven. I trust you with the big things. And it comes down to the little things, to our little famine, and we forget God. When that happens, we're tempted, you see, to simply do what everybody else does. We're tempted to listen to the culture. We're tempted to just act on our feelings at the time. We're tempted to just do what's normal. But if you and I are a believer in Jesus Christ, we are not normal. See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are among the people of God. People that God has redeemed, He has bought, He purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Peter says that you are a, He has made you into a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people who belong to God. We're God's people. You're not normal anymore. You're God's people. We are people, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are God's child. We are His children. How great is the love of God that we are called children of God. That is what we are, Scripture says. We've been adopted into His family. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. Your real citizenship is there. Your your passport from now on should say citizen of heaven. Because that's where our real home is. We're just sojourning here like Abraham in his tent. We're passing through. See, the Bible then goes on and on. There are more things that make us... We are different than the rest of the world. We're not normal. And so when famine comes into our life, when problems come into our life, we shouldn't respond. We shouldn't think. We shouldn't act like everybody else. We should be different. Because you and I, you see, have a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. We have an in with Him. The one who who created the earth, the one who controls the earth, the one who sends the rain, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. He made it all. He controls it all. Why can't we trust Him with it, you see? So let's not be like everybody else. And when the trouble comes, instead of looking for at ourselves and looking at our situation instead of looking like instead of focusing our attention on the storm as we sang about earlier let's focus our attention on Jesus Christ who's the shelter in the time of storm the will of god Warren Wiersbe said i think it's a great quote the will of god will never lead you where the grace of god cannot keep you god led abram to canaan god can take care of abram in canaan But Abram apparently forgets God in the face of the problem and he focuses on the problem and he comes up with a solution. And the solution is just what everybody else in the world is doing. Let's go to Egypt. Abraham needs to learn this lesson that God can care for you wherever he's called you. His departure for Egypt wasn't direct disobedience or direct sin, but... The very fact that he's not stepping out in faith, that he's not seeking God's direction, that he's not seeking God's answer, sets him up for problems. God has called us to step out in faith, and what hap- what's in the future isn't always certain, but he's not calling us to trust in what we see, he's calling us to trust him.
And Abraham, instead of continuing to walk in faith, has started to go towards what he can see. Verse 11, we pick up the story as he continues. So they're headed to Egypt. It's about 250 miles from from Canaan down to Egypt. They're traveling and somewhere along the way this happens. Verse 11, as they're about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you're my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. (laughs) You can just see the trouble about to happen. Fear leads Abraham to Egypt, and now fear leads Abraham to deception. Abraham's coming down here for food. He's getting worried because it dawns on him somewhere along the way that they've got a problem. He has married up in life. He has married a beautiful woman, a strikingly beautiful woman. And he realizes that Egyptians, while they would, they would not just take his wife because that would be immoral, they will gladly kill him and take his wife because that would be okay. And that's not a good situation. <laughs> and so, he concocts this little scheme, hey, Sarah, tell everybody you're my sister. Now, first you may wonder if you're thinking, if you've thought about this, at least I've heard people who, have, who wonder about this, why is Abraham concerned about this anyway? If you remember back in our story, when God called Abraham out of Haran and to go down to the promised land of Canaan, Abraham was 75 years old. His wife, is Sarai, is 10 years younger than him. That makes her 65. And so it's now maybe a year later, as they're on their way down to Egypt, that Abraham has this thought, wow, you are gorgeous. People are going to kill me because of you. And some people wondered. Now, again, I've never said this, but I've heard people say, you know, let's face it, there, there are, you know, at 65 years old or so, most ladies aren't entering beauty contests. And people wonder, so why is Abram really upset about this? You know, who's going to try to take his wife at 65? First of all, there's, there's a couple of things that maybe help us understand this. First of all is, while maybe most ladies at 65 aren't going to enter beauty contests, there are plenty of women in their 60s and 70s who are still very physically attractive. And most of you here who are in that age group fit into that category very well. <laughs> I'm dancing very carefully because I got into trouble in the first service. I almost got stoned right in here. <laughs> you can just look around and see that there are really attractive 65-year-old and 70-year-old ladies here. And there are many out there in the world. And you can Google it and find, oh, yeah, yeah, there's celebrities who just, you know, they turn heads at 65. And that may be it. I think there may be more to this. You have to realize that 
as you work through the, the book of Genesis and what you see is before the flood, people lived for seven, eight, nine hundred years. Methuselah, nine hundred and sixty-nine years. The lifespan of people after the flood, ages drop off drastically in a very short time within the, the generations after the flood. And But even here, you're, you're uh, what, I think seven, eight generations after the flood uh, at the time of Abraham, Sarai lives for 127 years. So that's a little longer than folks did even just a few generations after that. It's down to kind of where we are today. But if she lived 127, then 65 isn't quite 65. 65 was more middle age for her. So she's maybe, in our way of thinking, maybe more 35 or 40. Oh, okay, all right. Maybe that explains it. Whatever the, however we look at it, the bottom line is Abraham says she's beautiful and he's vindicated because other people, as we get on in the story, definitely think so as well. She's a striking beauty. Secondly, I have to point out that it sounds like Abraham is in line for the number one jerk of the year award. Because as they're coming into into Egypt, he says, now say you're my sister so it will go well with me and so I won't die. <laughs> really don't care what happens to you, on the other hand, you know, you may, but at least I, I don't get killed. That's what it really sounds like. And maybe that was the case, but I think it was different. I think Sarah was willing to go along with this <laughs> because I think there's more to the, to the rationale. I think the rationale behind the plan is something like this. Sarai, you are such a hottie that when people see you, they're going to want you and they're going to, because they want you, they're going to kill me. We already got that part. But if they think I'm your brother, it'll be a different situation because while culturally they might be able to kill me to take you, if I'm your brother, they wouldn't kill me. They have to negotiate to get you. You see, the brother has the right of the father at that point to negotiate the marriage contract. And so what happens is when they think you're my sister and they'll think, oh, she's eligible, so they'll approach me and say, whoa, who's that? Oh, that's my sister. Oh, hey, I've got a fleet of donkeys and a little property over on the northern uh, Nile and, uh, you know, a few gold bars, and I'd like to arrange a marriage with your wife. And he'd say, nice, nice offer. You know, I've had a lot of offers coming in. We're going to think about this. And so we're going to, I'm going to receive offers, and we'll, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll just say, well, we're contemplating, we're thinking, and that's going to set us up good for negotiating as we're trying to buy food and take care of the family here. And it'll also, we can just stall people, and eventually the famine up in Canaan is going to break. And if we stall long enough, we'll be able to, once that famine breaks, we'll be able to slip out of town. We'll be just fine. We'll all go home. And uh, you see... It really was a, it was kind of an ingenious plan and Abraham was probably, you know, patting himself on the back. I got a good plan here. Now, and by the way, he's, he really has got a good plan here because he really isn't fully lying. You see, because we'll find out in Genesis chapter 20, she really is his sister. 
his half-sister, same dad, different mothers, and that freaks us out. But you have to understand at that period in time, God hadn't prohibited that. That doesn't come to the Mosaic Law 400 years later. It also wasn't culturally prohibited at the time. And so it wasn't a big deal. So she really is his sister. So he's going, I got this covered. It's good. But just understand, once we take our eyes off Christ, as Abraham did when he went down to Egypt, once we, we start stop thinking about God and start focusing on our problems, it's very easy and it's a short step into sin. And what Abraham has done here, make no mistake about it, when we have to start parsing our words and dealing with technical truths, you know, it's not really a lie. It's mostly true. We can be sure we've crossed over into sin. Abram has crossed over into deception. And that leads us to failure. The story continues, verse 14. Uh, where we just were. Abraham came to Egypt, saw that she was a very beautiful woman. Pharaoh's officials saw her. And they praised her to Pharaoh. She was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and men servants and maidservants and camels. Abram's plan, well, he was right. He got to Egypt and indeed everybody in Egypt thought she was beautiful. And everybody wanted her, and including Pharaoh. <laughs> it was a great plan, except he just forgot that one little thing. There's one guy in Egypt who doesn't have to negotiate. The king. Ironically, you see, the king, if he thought that Sarai was married, the king probably would have respected that and left Abram and Sarai alone. But this brilliant scheme said, she's eligible. And Pharaoh said, good. Abram was right. Abram was right about another thing. Not only would people want her, but people would treat him well because of her. And so Pharaoh did. They couldn't get out of this because the only way out of this would be to tell the truth. And to tell the truth would be telling Pharaoh, well, I lied about that other thing. And that would certainly jeopardize their life. So now they're kind of stuck. But while he's stuck, all these gifts start showing up at the door. All these things. He sends him flocks and herds. And there's a couple of things. R. Kent Hughes in his book on Genesis says this. He says that the female donkeys and camels say it all. So the female donkey in that period of time was the ride of choice for the wealthy in Egypt. It was like the Lexuses and the BMWs of the Nile. That's what's showing up on his doorstep. And the camel, oh my goodness. Hughes says the camel is the equivalent of owning a Ferrari. Abram's deception has worked. It's done what he said. He said people are going to want you and here's how we'll spare our lives. Well, their lives are spared and... People are going to treat me well. Well, they do. And just be aware that many of our worst ideas, even our sinful ideas, will actually work for a while. Always be aware that sin will always fail in the end. Abram's rolling in the riches. But how can he possibly enjoy any of it as his wife is in Pharaoh's harem in Pharaoh's palace? 
See, Abram is probably thinking now, I would have been better off hungry in Canaan than rich in Egypt. Verse 17, God intervenes. Wonderful words, but the Lord. Almost always good words when they show up in Scripture. But the Lord, God intervenes. The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. God steps in, plagues come on to Pharaoh and his house. The Bible doesn't say how the word got out, but as we'll see here, the truth leaks out, and it usually will. Sarai is married, she's Abram's wife, not his sister. Though the Scripture doesn't explicitly state it, I believe the text implies that God protected Sarai from being sexually violated here, whether it was through the plagues that came directly on Pharaoh and on his house, or whether it was because that during this time she was, as would typically be for someone to be married to the king, they would go through a period of preparation. You may recall the story of Esther, who was before the, the marriage to the king, there was a period of one year preparation. God intervened. Pharaoh comes to Abram. Verse 18. What have you done? Actually, he doesn't come to Abram. He brings Abram to him. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And what did you, why did you say she's my sister? So I took her to be my wife. What a sad situation. The king, the unbelieving pagan king, confronts the man of God with his sin. What a humiliating and a horrible place to be. Reminds me a little bit of the prophet Jonah who had, if you recall, God said, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, I don't think so. He hops on a ship going to Tarshish. And as he's, he's in the, on the boat, the, the boat starts to go down and and the sailors are frantic in the middle of this great storm and they're throwing things overboard and finally they're, they're casting lots and, and trying to figure out whose fault is it that this is happening. And the lot falls on Jonah and they go, hey Jonah, what's up? And he goes, oh yeah, I'm a prophet of God. I'm trying to run from him. The God who made the heavens and the earth, who created everything, who's in charge of everything, I'm trying to run from him. And the sailors are like, are you nuts? Are you an idiot? What are you doing? You know? Who does that? That's the pagans saying that to the godly, the man of God. And that's what it is here with Pharaoh. He's going, who does this? Well, and Abraham doesn't have an answer. He doesn't say anything. He just kind of slinks out of Egypt. It's kind of like that country western song from a couple of years ago. Well, I knew what I was doing, but what was I thinking? I don't know. Have you ever been there at that, in that place in your life where an unbeliever confronts you in your sin? Why did you lie? Why did you cheat on your time card? Why did you cheat on a test? Why did you do that? How could you do that? Why did you say that? You, you shouldn't talk about people like that. Have you ever been there? It's an embarrassing, humiliating place to be. Verse 20, then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife, 
and everything he had. They, he gave them a military escort and sent them out of the country. But did you notice? They're alive! Abram's got his life. He's got his wife. And all the stuff that they picked up in Egypt, it's all going back with them. They're riding along on their new camels. Hey, Sarai, didn't go too bad, did it? <laughs> Probably got hit with a couple of gold bars. He's very wealthy, by the way. You go down to the next chapter, verse 2, it says, Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Where? In Egypt. Because it says it again right before it, that he went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. It's all the stuff they got in Egypt. So this didn't turn out too bad, did it? Or did it? See, the reality is that um, it wasn't a successful trip. The cost of Abram's lack of trust in God had high costs. He got Sarai back, but undoubtedly and inevitably this whole experience must have taken a, a big toll on their relationship. It, I, couldn't not have. This sin sets up a pattern in Abram's life which will show up again in chapter 20. We'll see there in a few weeks. and It shows up in his son's life. And just be aware, parents, our kids tend to pick up our failures and our sins and our flaws, don't they? There's at least two things that they got in Egypt and they're bringing back that will cause problems later on. The first is all that wealth they have, and it shows up in the next chapter as Abram and his nephew Lot have to part company because they're too wealthy. The other is Sarai comes back with an Egyptian handmaid named Hagar. And that shows up in chapter 16. We'll get there in a few weeks. But most significantly, the big cost is in missed opportunities. Because Abram didn't stay in Canaan, he missed the opportunity and his household missed the opportunity to see God provide in the house of God in Bethel in the famine. It would have been a testimony to them of the faithfulness of God and the care of God and it would have been a testimony to the folks in Canaan. But he missed that. And if God had wanted them to go down to Egypt, because of their lack of faith, his lack of faith and the deception, the deceitfulness, there were great missed opportunities there. You remember last week when God called Abraham out of Ur and he said, come follow me. That was the first command and he were promises with it. And he said, and you will be a blessing. That was a command. Be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all nations of the earth, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations and to the peoples of the earth. And the problem is, Abram goes to Egypt and rather than being a blessing, he's a curse. Rather than bringing blessings, he brings curses. Rather than being God's man who is proclaiming about Yahweh to people, Abram goes there and he never prays, he never builds an altar, he never uh, calls on the name of the Lord, which, by the way, Martin Luther re translates that phrase, he never preaches. <laughs> he never tells anybody, best we can tell in Egypt, about Yahweh, about God. And even if he wanted to, he has destroyed his credibility so that who would listen 
to this man who is a liar and a deceiver. He missed opportunities to be a blessing. So it is with you and me. That's the most devastating consequence of sinful or faithless living in our own lives is we miss the opportunities to see God provide in the midst of our circumstances. See, the, the worse our circumstances, the greater the opportunity to see how God cares for us. And when we live faithlessly, we miss the opportunity to represent Christ to, other, to those who do not know Him. But despite Abram's faithlessness and despite his sin, God responds with grace. God protected them. He brings them back to Canaan. And He continues His work and His purpose and the promise in Abram's life. And I wonder why would God be so good to a faithless man? The same reason God was good to call him in the first place. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. God just loves and cares for him like He does us. Thankfully, God does not treat us as our sins deserve, David wrote in Psalms 103. He does not repay us according to us iniquity. That's good news for all of us who fall. Not only that, God's kindness, Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, is designed and meant to lead us to repentance. God's goodness to us, even when we fail, is intended to draw us closer and closer to Him so we won't walk out from Canaan next time, that we won't focus our eyes on the problems, but rather we'll focus our eye on the One who loves us so much. What do we do when we blow it, when we mess up, do like Abraham, fess up? And do what He does here in verse 3 of the next chapter, and we'll end there. From the Negev he went to place to place till he came to Bethel, the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier. Back the last time that he was walking with God, he went back there. I'm not saying we have to go back to the place physically, but go back to where we were in our relationship with God. What does he do? He goes to the altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. That's what we do when we blow it. We learn. Oh yeah, God was more gracious to me than I deserve. God, I'm sorry. I blew you off. <laughs> I went according to my own plans and my own ideas and I made a mess of it. And we call on the name of the Lord and in His grace, isn't that great? He takes us back. Let's pray. Father, there may be some folks today who they're in the pits. They've blown it and they needed to hear this that there's a way back. We just come back and call upon You. Thank You for Your grace to us. Lord, there may be some of us who are in a famine, we're in a difficult spot, and, and we've found ourselves taking our eyes off You. We've got our eyes on our problems. We're starting to listen to the advice of the world, to the advice of the culture. The, we're tending to do the normal stuff because we've forgotten who we are in our relationship with You. Lord, may we get our eyes back on You and so that we don't, fall into sin and we don't fail the test, but rather we look to You and see what it is You have for us in this. Maybe there's something You're trying to teach us. There's something You're trying to show us. You're wanting to grow us. Lord, let us learn the lessons. So rather than the problems taking us away from You, they drive us to Your side. 
And we see Your grace there. So Lord God, help us to keep our eyes on You, both for our good and for Your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.